Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast, where we look at how researchers can become more productive and use their work to achieve real-world impacts. In today's podcast, I'm going to be looking at how you can reconceptualize yourself as an academic to get more focus and better work-life balance. And I'm going to give you a really powerful practical exercise that you can do that I think will make you think radically differently uh, about yourself and your career. Powerful stuff today. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to give you my research impact tip of the week. Today's tip is uh, turning conventional wisdom about the social media platform Twitter on its head. Uh, I recently took over uh, managing the Twitter feed for uh, my school at Newcastle University. Uh, and the people who uh, I'm managing it with told me that uh, they'd been instructed by the university that they had to tweet at least twice a day. And they confessed that, uh, to be honest, there wasn't enough to say twice a day and they were kind of saying quite a lot of rubbish um, uh, just to try and make up something to to tweet that much. Uh, My advice turns that on its head and says actually uh, tweet um, as much as you have got good material for. And actually if you've only got a very small amount of good material very infrequently then only tweet very infrequently. What you will need to do, though, is to have a strategy to enable you to get that message to a large and very relevant group of people. Otherwise, yeah, you're tweeting, but no one's seeing it. There's no point. Uh, And there are two ways that you can do this. Uh, The most important way that I'm going to suggest is uh, to rely on influences. There are people uh, in your school, probably, in your university, in your institution, wherever you're working, who are actually quite influential uh, on that platform. You've got lots of followers. Uh, And a quick word with them uh, to ask them if they would uh, retweet uh, your post uh, will most probably uh, lead to that getting to a very relevant and potentially much larger audience. I've done this quite regularly um, with my research funders, with uh, large uh, non-governmental organisations, etc. There is someone somewhere in that organisation sitting in front of a computer who is pressing the tweet button. And if you can go through the switchboard and talk to that person on the phone and pitch why it is that your tweet is really important and relevant to their followers, then 99% of the time they will say, yeah, okay, that's fine, I'll retweet that. Uh, And now suddenly, rather than uh, getting out to the 100 or 200 followers that you've got, this is now going out to tens or hundreds of thousands uh, of people. Uh, Your other option is to have some kind of a follow strategy. Um, This is something I've spoken about in the the last uh, podcast series. Uh, So go back to that if you want more details on how to do this uh, or just kind of Google follow strategies. Uh, Lots of people out there talking about how to do that effectively. Uh, The one thing I would suggest is if you do go down that route, then you're probably not going to want to do that for your own personal account because it might look a little bit egotistical. Uh, But uh, I do it for uh, my institutional account. So for my school account, for example, project accounts or thematic accounts. Uh, And uh, that means that you are now targeting a whole load of people who you know are uh, are relevant, um, 
for achieving the kind of impacts that you want, who are going to be interested in your material, you're following them, they're seeing what you're doing, and the majority of them say, hey, that's interesting, they follow back, uh, you grow your audience rapidly. Uh, what I'm saying here is you don't have to go to that lens. You don't have to have a follow strategy. You don't have to really spend a lot of time at all on this. You can tweet once every six months and get that retweeted by someone influential uh, and in a matter of seconds um, per year, uh, potentially, uh, you are actually getting uh, the most out of this platform. Okay, so we are going to move on to the main segment today. I said that we would focus on how we might reconceptualize ourselves as researchers to get more focus and uh, better work-life balance. Uh, and to do that, what I'd like to, to do is to uh, look through some material that uh, I've um, written for my forthcoming book. Uh, and this follows on from what I was talking about last week in relation to our motivations. Uh, at the end of what I was saying last week, I was talking to you about uh, a story that I'd found incredibly dis disempowering um, and how we can actually, on purpose, retell our stories and reframe um, what is happening to us and where we are going. Uh, I asked you last week to have a think about some questions. Um, uh, and in particular, I asked you why it is that you are a researcher. Why do you do what you do. Uh, and my hope is that most of you are quite happy with your answers to that question. Um, uh, but uh, for some of us, actually, when you really probe behind the answers and really ask why, then you may actually find some hidden motives that are perhaps, uh, as I found, quite disempowering. Um, uh, and I think it's important that we don't ignore these disempowering stories um, and we don't ignore the power that they have to demotivate us. Uh, and rather than ignoring them, uh, what I believe we need to do is to learn how to retell those stories so that we can discover and embed motives based on our values that will, on a day-to-day -day basis, enrich and empower us and so drive us, keep us focused and enable us to stay the course. Uh, I met uh, a gentleman called Andrew Scott. Um, when I started my job in Newcastle, he uh, was helping to do the uh, uh, induction program for new professors um, in Newcastle University. Uh, I really enjoyed what he did uh, in the training, learned a huge amount. Uh, and in fact, um, based on that training, I decided, you know what, I need to start a podcast. So uh, thank you, Andrew, for, for that inspiration. Uh, Andrew has just recently uh, published uh, a book um, and in Andrew Scott's book, he talks about uh, what he calls the many-story approach as a way of understanding the stories that perhaps hold you back uh, and enabling you to retell your story on purpose to re-motivate yourself. And in his approach, he describes three steps. The first of these steps is to loosen your grip on unhelpful stories, unhelpful stories about yourself and about the people that you interact with. The second is discovering more helpful stories, crucially that are linked to our values, which then open up more positive possibilities for the future. And the third of these then is uh, about enriching and embedding this new story. 
So the first one then, uh, loosening your grip on unhelpful stories about yourself and the people you interact with. I think the, the problem with unhelpful stories is that we usually have constructed them for a good reason. Uh, and usually the story will have been confirmed through experience. We'll have evidence to support it. And so over time, as we accept these disempowering stories, they become internalised as part of who we are, as part of our identity. And instead of accepting that we mess up sometimes, we view our latest mistake as being one in a long line of failures, both personal, professional, etc., stretching back through the years. And by doing that, we're feeding into a powerful meta-narrative that we're telling about our lives and ourselves that is fundamentally disempowering. Every now and then we will succeed and something amazing will happen and it's, it's a massive success. Uh, or someone gives us really positive feedback, but because it doesn't fit into the narrative that we're telling about ourselves, we pay it very little attention and it doesn't actually change our view of ourselves. And we become uh, incredibly single-minded and unable to change our, our view of ourselves. Being aware of the stories that we've constructed about ourselves, I believe, is the first step to being able to consciously loosen our grip on these stories uh, uh, when we realise that we are feeding in yet again to that, that old bad story. Uh, Phil Ward at uh, the University uh, of Kent uh, created the concept of uh, the Grant Factory, I think, with some colleagues down there in Kent. Uh, and he created this as a way of helping his academics to change their narrative about writing grants because he realised that there was this incredibly negative, disempowering story that people were feeding into about the latest grant that they didn't get and it's never going to happen and there's kind of no point in even getting back on your feet again to try and do this again. Uh, <clears throat> what he was doing was valuing the process of creating the grant and putting it on the conveyor belt of the peer review process and focusing on the creative process of your next grant rather than anxiously awaiting the verdict of your last grant. No matter how many times his colleagues' proposals are rejected, Phil and his team are celebrating the creative success of the grant writing process with their academics and urging them to start cooking up their next idea and putting it back onto the conveyor belt in their grant factory. Uh, for me, I love it. Uh, I don't know what you think, but, uh, but this is a, a very creative uh, and practical way of creating a, a new narrative. And they run Grants Factory workshops, and it's a whole big thing in, in, in Kent that uh, is a story that they're trying to write as an institution for their researchers and with their researchers. The second part of Andrew Scott's many story approach is uh, about discovering more helpful stories linked to our values, which then open up more positive possibilities for our future. If you want to believe a new story about your life, you can't just make it up out of thin air. To be powerfully believable, these stories need to be based on evidence, because the old story was based on evidence. Yeah, I mess up. Yeah, I'm not good at this, etc., etc. However, now you, in theory, have started to loosen your grip on the unhelpful stories. That's the last point. And so it becomes possible to look across your full range of experience now to find evidence that could be used to construct 
a more compelling and empowering narrative. You've taken the blinkers off. You're not now just looking at that old story and everything that only fits into that old story. You're looking now much more objectively across the full range of your experience. The new story clearly needs to be just as credible, if not more credible, uh, than the old story. And it needs to be helpful. For the new story to be even more powerful than the old, unhelpful story, try and make sure that it explicitly connects with your values. And for me, that's what's going to help motivate you to push through the hard work of actually replacing the old story with the new. That takes emotional investment and energy to do that on purpose every time that old story rears its ugly head. Uh, a friend of mine was ready to give up on research altogether uh, and go into university management after the latest in a long string of grant rejections. Uh, I was uh, on some of his grants, uh, uh, grant proposals with him. Uh, in my opinion, these were fantastic uh, proposals. Uh, there was nothing fundamentally wrong with them at all. Uh, it seemed unjust, unfair. Instead of giving up, though, he decided to reframe his career as a thought leader given the compelling evidence that he got that he could write and get published in top journals. Uh, and he does this, and he does it amazingly. So he stopped investing so much time in writing grants and started investing more time in writing and uh, reinforcing a story that he could tell about himself, about the unique and important contribution that he was able to bring to his field. The third Part of Andrew Scott's many story approach then is to then try and really enrich and embed this new story. It is hard work to replace an unhelpful story, especially if, like the stories I had told about, about myself, these are stories you've told yourself again and again for years and years. You need to strengthen, rehearse, confirm, find new evidence for your new story. Uh, and so the last step of the, the many story approach is about reinforcing the new story so it can outcompete the old story when you're tempted to slip back into old thinking. Look for as much evidence as you can find from across all parts of your life, personal and professional, that can substantiate this new story, which you can use in future to confront your doubting self when the old story is competing for your attention. And once you've enriched the plot as much as possible, then you need to embed that plot in your consciousness, telling yourself a new story on purpose, regularly, and subtly telling it to others and watching as they confirm your new narrative. Yes, that's how I see you as well. I met Anna Attlee uh, when she was a PhD student, uh, and she went on to do a postdoc position with me. When I first met her, Anna was loosening her grip on a disempowering story that uh, was being told about her at the time by her PhD supervisor to her face, um, uh, who came from a very different scientific tradition. Uh, this is quite a common story. Um, I've picked up a number of PhD students over the years who have come a cropper uh, from PhD supervisors who do not value the disciplinary perspective they are coming from, uh, and as a result, put them down constantly, and, uh, and it can be incredibly damaging. Uh, it turned out uh, that she'd been told a, a fairly similar story again and again when she was growing up. Um, most PhD students, uh, I think in her shoes, would have given up under the sustained criticism that she suffered 
but instead Anna was creating a new narrative and it was a narrative that she rehearsed again and again I saw her with me with her colleagues and it was a single sentence it was the sentence that was her Twitter profile text. It was on her website, and it was how she would introduce herself to new people. It was simply, I'm Anna, and I want to change the world. Every morning, she would set her alarm for 5 a.m., and she would read through a number of what she called affirmations that she'd written about herself, uh, and then what she called visualizations, things that she wanted to achieve, but she would try and actually visualize and imagine them in her, in her mind. Then she'd spend time reading something that would help her achieve her goals. She'd write down her thoughts and she'd take some exercise. Uh, SAVERS, I think uh, she told me, was the, the acronym uh, for this. Um, and I'm not going to try and rehearse that now, but if you Google SAVERS, um, then uh, hopefully you'll, you'll come up with uh, more guidance on this. The cool thing was that she did all this before I'd even woke up, let alone joined her in the office. Um, I have to confess, I've tried it. I'm not quite as, uh, as disciplined as Anna. <laughs> uh, I like my sleep too much, sadly. Uh, but I have tried in my own way to, to repurpose what she did because I saw how incredibly powerful uh, it was for her. Uh, she decided that her vision was bigger than what she could achieve as an academic. And so she set up uh, a charity with a business alongside it to fund its work during her postdoc position uh, with me. And she now runs, I think, three, uh, it's kind of hard to keep track, to be honest, uh, but a whole load of highly successful businesses. And through her charity, she is setting up a global network of urban nature reserves where poor inner city communities can grow food. Anna enriched and embedded her new story so successfully that in a period of five years, she went from wanting to change the world to actually changing it. So one of the reasons that I'm telling you this um, is that uh, I think that we can consciously retell our stories in ways that uh, can be incredibly empowering for our motivation. And I think that the most empowering motives are those that are linked to our, our values and the most empowering narratives and stories we can tell are the ones which are uh, linked to our values. Your values are part of who you are, your identity. And so as we live out our new story, we reaffirm who we are and who we want to be. In this way, we become able to connect with some of the deepest and most empowering motives that are available to anyone. So I'm going to conclude by trying to make this more concrete. And I want to share a practical technique that I use to help people to discover more empowering motives. I've tried this with my students. Uh, I tried it with various people that, that I mentor, um, and people find this incredibly useful. Uh, so try it out. Uh, hopefully you find it useful. Um, and if, if you do, uh, then try it with someone else and, and see if you can help them. What you need to do is to draw a circle on a piece of paper and make a pie chart of all the things that make up who you are. So you can try and do this in your head. Uh, I think it works much more effectively if you actually draw it out. Uh, you might want to consider things like your gender, your age, your race, your sexuality, if these are important things that you see as part of yourself. You might want to include roles like the fact that I'm a parent, a sister or a son. Perhaps part of who you are is a researcher, a mentor or a teacher. Do you have a creative or spiritual side? List all the most important things 
and now make the size of each slice in your pie chart proportional to the importance of that part of your identity. So you've got a circle, you've got a little dot in the middle, you've got now a, a pie chart, and each of these segments is a part of who you are, a part of your identity. The size of each segment is proportional to the importance of that part of your identity, not, crucially, uh, the amount of time you spend on it. So there, there could be things that are actually a big part of who you are, that you no longer have time to spend on, but that are still actually a big part of your identity. So, for example, you may still see yourself fundamentally as uh, a musician, despite the fact that you haven't picked up your instrument since you had children. Based on this exercise, then, there are a couple of things that I think you can do to create empowering, motive, uh, empowering motives. Uh, so the first is ask yourself how you spend your time. So what I like to do is to get my piece of paper, turn it over now, uh, and I redraw the pie chart. It's empty now, just a circle, a dot in the middle. Uh, and now uh, I am making each size, um, the size of each segment, sorry, proportional this time to the amount of time I spend being that part of myself. Some people discover that... Uh, important parts of their identity disappear altogether from the second pie chart because actually they never ever have time to spend on that part of who they are. Uh, some people need to actually add new segments to their pie chart that they would rather not have to, to be honest, to reflect the time spent in roles or other parts of themselves that they don't really want to be. The second thing then is now to look at both sides of the paper. Turn it over, look at your first pie chart, your second chart pie chart, and now list all of the values that underpin the different segments of your identity. Uh, I like to just write these around the outside of the pie chart, doesn't matter which one you're writing it around. Um, some of the segments themselves may actually be values, so great, that's, that's a, a great start. Uh, there may be some segments that are not underpinned by values, that's fine. But be systematic and ask yourself um, if there is a value, what is the value that underpins each of, uh, each of those segments, each of those parts of your identity in turn, working through um, your, your pie chart. If you're struggling to get to the level of values, uh, then I find it useful to try and think of the qualities or character traits that underpin each segment. Uh, something that's an easier question. Uh, otherwise, you might want to try and think of beliefs or principles that might underpin it. So, for example, when you think about your role as a researcher, you may realise how important values like honesty and integrity are to you. Uh, or as you think about uh, your identity as a parent, uh, how much you value patience and gentleness. So, my question to you then is, how similar or different are the first and second parts of your pie charts? Uh, so, your first and second versions of, of the pie chart. If they're quite similar, then this suggests that you are prioritising your time in ways that are consistent with uh, and feeding into your sense of who you are and who you want to be. And you probably feel pretty satisfied with your work-life balance um, and what you do day to day. If, on the other hand, the two pie charts are radically different from each other, you probably have a sense of frustration on a fairly regular basis and an uneasy sense of losing touch with yourself. Or maybe even a fear that you may be turning into somebody you don't want to be. If the parts of your identity that are much smaller uh, or non-existent are the parts that are actually linked 
to really important values, then it's likely that you will feel a fairly deep sense of dissonance. This dissonance is likely to actively demotivate you on a fairly regular basis. This is going to be the cause, I suspect, of your procrastination, if you feel like you're procrastinating on some really important task. And it's likely to make you question why you are doing the things that you are doing and make it harder and harder to motivate yourself. Fortunately for me, this exercise provides a clear solution to the problem. You need to spend more time doing the things that are aligned with your identity and values if you want to reconnect with yourself and reaffirm or reshape your identity and your values. If you don't, then I think you run the danger of becoming what you spend your time on. It's not going to happen overnight, but over the course of an entire career spent prioritising the wrong things, you may retire to discover that you have become a different person, a person that you may or may not like. We become the people we are day by day, one decision at a time. It has taken a lifetime of decisions to become who you are today, and it therefore stands to reason that reconnecting with your most powerful value-based motives will take time. And I believe that only through sustained, consistent decisions to do the things that are most important to you and to say no to the things that distract you from that ultimate purpose can you rediscover or become the person you want to be. Your challenge is to make consistent decisions in a highly inconsistent world. On a clear day, you can see the path ahead clearly, but in the midst of a storm, it's easy to get disorientated. And sadly, it is often the decisions that we make in the storm that we live to regret most. Uh, I'm going to come on uh, in a future podcast to uh, how you can try and set up guardrails, uh, simple shortcuts in your head that can enable you to connect with your values and your principles and what is most important to you in the midst of the craziest storm and the shortest snap decision that you might have to make that could be a career-defining moment for you. Um, but at this point, I'm going to finish talking about this uh, and, uh, and think about what you can do as a practical action from what we've discussed today. So, uh, what can you do practically to implement uh, what I've suggested to you today? Uh, and I'm going to suggest, even if you just do this in your head, um, I, I do believe this works really effectively if you uh, do actually draw this out. Draw that pie chart in your head uh, and just ask yourself that question. Uh, am I spending my time on a day-to-day -day basis when that aggregates up to weeks and months and the last year and the last couple of years, am I spending time doing the things that are actually most important to who I am? Uh, and think now uh, in career terms about which aspects of your identity connect to your career. Uh, what are the things that 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 uh, would describe you as a researcher, as a lecturer, uh, the various different roles and, and things that you do and contributions that you make to your students, to the, to the world of research uh, at an international level. Uh, how do they connect with who you are? How do they connect with your values? Uh, and by making it clear now, 
uh, as to what your values are and uh, what parts of your identity connect with these parts of your career. I believe that you can start to make decisions to say yes to the right things, no to the things that will distract you from that higher purpose and start to become more motivated, more focused and more successful.